You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, trashotroncom agony. It was a reference to one of their teachers at Princeton who had gone so far as to print up a wallet card for people to keep in front of them during conversations like this one. One side of the card was solid red with no words or images and was meant to be displayed outward as a nonverbal signal that you disagreed and that you weren't going to be drawn into a fake argument. The other side, facing the user, was a list of little reminders as to what was really going on. One, speech is aggression. Two, every utterance has a winner and a loser. Three, curiosity is feigned. Four, lying is performative. Five, stupidity is power. Neil Stevenson is the author of the novels Zodiac, Snow Crash, The Diamond Age, Cryptonomicon, The Baroque Trilogy, consisting of Quicksilver, The Confusion, and The System of the World, Anathem, Reemdi, Seven Eves, and with Nicole Galland, The Rise and Fall of D.O.D.O., and a collection of essays in the beginning came the command line. His new novel is Fall, or Dodge in Hell. Thank you for joining me, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. As I read this book, I just dipped right into it. And I think one of the things you do really effectively from the beginning is set create a kind of nostalgia for the present, which is a really <laughs> interesting way to begin a novel that stretches pretty far into the future. Talk about creating that really palpable sense and putting us so much into the minds of the characters. It's, it's a really poignant opening, I thought. Uh, you're just talking about the opening chapters where yeah. Dodge is waking up and thinking about sleep and uh, and his, uh, going about his day-to-day activities. Exactly. And his thoughts about sleep are ever relevant <laughs> to what is going to come to pass in this novel. Yeah, it, it's, it seems like he's just kind of engaging in some stray rumination, but uh, every word of it eventually ties into things that happen later in the plot involving his brain. Now, um, this book is a kind of, it's two books in one. Mm-hmm. There's a science fiction novel, a techno thriller set in, in the, the day after tomorrow through yep. the near future. Mm-hmm. And then there's a fantasy novel that it happens. So talk about your interest in those two genres of fiction. Well, it's a funny thing about fantasy and science fiction that although superficially they seem like very different uh, genres, um, uh, there are a lot of people who enjoy both of them very much. Um, And uh, I guess there might be some who read one or the other, uh, but a a great many people who read the one read science fiction, for example, like fantasy and vice versa. And so it's always been interesting to me that there's that linkage. And so I'm trying to work with that a little bit here in fall by, uh, as you say, embedding a high fantasy book in the context of a techno thriller. Did you know you were going to do that, or did that just happen as a result? As no, you this, the plot? That's, a, that's a case where I knew pretty much what the plan was going to be uh, as I went in, yeah. Now, um, one of the things that, that I like about this novel are the characters are so warm, they're so filled with um, humanity that they really pop for us. And, and the guy I like a lot is Corvallis, C+. He, these characters, the, at 
least in the beginning, come from the novel Reemdi. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so talk about the relationship between these two novels for you. Well, uh, as you say, a number of the characters in, in Fall, uh, we met previously in Reemdi, which is a very different book. Reemdi is a straight-up techno-thriller. It's set all in the present day. It doesn't have any of the fantasy element. Um, and it's pretty much a kind of run-and-gun kind of action book and in the course of writing it I uh, developed some characters that kind of stuck with me I liked them I liked the relationships that they had with one another so I had the idea for fall concurrently and had been thinking for a while about about its cast of characters and it occurred to me that that Richard or, or his nickname is Dodge uh, actually would would be a great pick for the main character of of fall, um, and so I made the decision to go ahead and, and and do that, which it's it's not a sequel though. It's, no, not no, no. So so you don't need to have read Reemdi in order to uh, in order to get going on, on fall, and if you come in to if you have read Reemdi. Um, and you come into fall expecting that it's going to sort of pick up where where Reemdi left off. Uh, that's that's not what this does. No, you do take the unique uh, path of uh, killing your main character. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. No. In the early part of the novel. Yeah. I, that was a pretty easy decision for you, given the structure of the novel. Yeah, I always knew the whole the whole basic plot line of the. The book was was known for for a long time to me, and it was that we would have a character, uh, you know, a successful tech person uh, who who suddenly and unexpectedly passes away um, at the very beginning of the book, and that's exactly what happens to him. One of the the things that I thought about as I read the this early portion of the book was that. Um, there are so many different kinds of technology in this world. And one of the most complicated and almost insane kind of technologies we've ever created is the law. And yeah. you had to immerse yourself a bit in that for this book, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't want to get too deep into it. But uh, what happens after Dodge passes away is that his friends and family get to looking at his will. And they discover that uh, some years ago, when he first kind of came into money... He was running with a crowd of people who believed in cryonics, you know, the idea that you could freeze your, uh, your body after death and maybe revive it at some point in the future. And so kind of in an impulsive moment, he went ahead and signed a will that included some instructions on how to do that. Um, and that comes as a surprise to his friends and family. Uh, they then have to figure out how to um, carry out the, his intent um, given the current state of technology and uh, what's changed since he, since he signed the will is that it no longer seems like the best way to do this is just to freeze the body and keep it on ice for, you know, a thousand years or something until we have technology to, to bring a frozen body back to life. But instead, there's a, something we could do today, which is scan the, the brain make a record of how it's hooked up uh, in the hopes that, that it could be brought back to life as a digital simulation. And that 
brings up another kind of science that is really deeply immersed through this book, not just in terms of the technology created, but it also uh, dictates to a certain extent the plot line of the fantasy, no less, which I think yeah. is really a fascinating idea. So talk about the immersing yourself in neuroscience. Did you talk to some people about that, and who? Uh, no, I mean, I did, did some reading. I, um, I did something a little different with this book compared to some of my others. So in Seven Eves, for example, um, I, I went to some lengths to try to make it as scientifically correct as I could in terms of the, the way the rockets worked and the orbits and the trajectories and so on. Um, because that was important to, to that book. In this case, in the case of Fall, I didn't want uh, to go down that rabbit hole that deeply, um, partly because there's a lot we don't know. We, we don't understand the brain as well as we understand the trajectory of a rocket. Uh, and so it's hard to be as clear uh, about it. And um, what I mainly wanted to do was to get down to the business of telling a story um, so in this case, uh, I've taken some liberties uh, with the, I'm not directly saying things that are not true, but I'm, I'm kind of allowing myself to speculate and have a little freedom to, uh, to imagine here um, in a way that a, a strict neuroscientist might, uh, might not agree with. Well, I think that one of the things that you do most effectively is you put so much detail in your novels, historical detail, technical details, nature, history, that it's hard for us to tell, uh, rapidly becomes difficult for us to discern the difference between something you made up elaborately or something you've written about and studied elaborately. And we can go back and forth on the uh, internet if you want to, but I, for me that just disrupts the the reading experience of the novel and the immersive experience of the novel. And this is a novel that is really immersive. And so talk about your use of, you know, digression and, mm. and you know, exploring, going down an alley for what many people would consider almost a, a novel or a good, a good uh, chunk of short story. Well, um, I... Uh, uh, I, I think it's okay to, to ramble into to little uh, little side currents uh, of, of story and character um, if you don't overdo it. And so um, uh, from time to time, uh, if I think I've got um, an idea that will help say something about the character, about how that person thinks, what's important to them, um, uh, or that might just make an, an entertaining little bit of prose for people to read, I'll, I'll go off on one of those little uh, digressions, like you say. And I think the key to it um, is that it, uh, it needs to ultimately serve some kind of purpose uh, in the larger plot of the book. Uh, it doesn't have to be obvious, uh, but it, it could later sort of uh, curve back and tie in um, to something that happens in the book, or um, uh, or maybe it's just a, a way of illuminating uh, something about uh, somebody's character uh, that that later kind of syncs up with something that they do uh, at a different part of the story. Now, one of the things I think that 
those digressions are beautifully written, and there's a lot of really great prose in this book, especially at the beginning, but also throughout, there's a wonderful, like almost a poem about where you just do recite different uh, versions of things nerds do. It's like about a page that, that is really nicely written. Could you talk about uh, me- messing with the prose? Does this happen, does this pour off the tip of your pen or the tip of your word processor, as it were, or...? Um, this happened in revision. I know. Uh, I try to um, to to kind of structure my day so that I'm uh, I'm I'm focused on writing during the the part of the day when I'm kind of feeling most alert, which is early in the morning. Uh, and uh, you know, I try to get several good pages uh, done uh, and then stop. Um, when I sense I'm kind of uh, getting tired or, or beginning to lose my my focus a little bit, um, and so the other uh, thing I'm doing is I, I write with a fountain pen on paper so I can kind of see the sentences taking shape on the page, and I'm kind of mentally uh, sometimes reading them back to myself um, to see if they've got a cadence. Uh, and a structure that is pleasing. Mm. Well, I I found a lot of parts of this were just sound nice read aloud, or you know there are parts you would just like uh, some digression or some conversation you w- want to go back in, and, and I, I think this also gets to another one of your main tools, which is humor. You write really well, and the humor in this is constant throughout but it's very very understated mm. i think a little more understated than your other novels not that it's less funny yeah but i think so talk about uh metering out the the humor in, sure. in this particular book yeah well um so uh to begin with the subject matter is pretty serious and so if there wasn't any humor <laughs> you know it could get a little hard to take um so um but humor is part of life um you you rarely see uh, two people have a conversation or interact with each other for very long without at least a little bit of a out, outburst of humor and laughter at some point. Um, and so um, I think it's important to, that uh, fictional characters, when they're interacting with each other, um, do that uh, as well. Um, so it would be very odd to... Um, uh, or I find it odd to read a uh, a dialogue between two fictional characters, um, in which at no point does anybody say anything funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not how people behave. No, no, we're always trying to under undercut ourselves in a sense, just to to yeah. keep from sounding like uh, we're not. None of us are Walter Cronkite. Yeah. More, and even he was capable of humor. Sure. Now, uh, this book uh you well, one of the things there's just an amazing segment in, in Rindy you had a hundred page i think uh gunfight which was just astonishing <laughs> it was felt yeah. like reading 10 pages but it, was, it felt like reading those 10 pages as if they were a a movie that you were watching um in this book there's a a whole sequence where and I was reading this sequence while my wife was watching silent, uh, to me, MSNBC. I have my headphones on just mm. listening to music. And so MSNBC is just broadcasting all this stuff that just seems like exactly out of your book. 
which has to do with um, the one of the things that we're losing is reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there used to be something called consensus reality, but there is no consensus anymore, is there? No, uh, it's been kind of uh, washed out from under the foundations of, of our uh, society in a way, and it happened kind of while we weren't paying attention. Uh, we, no, but nobody, it's one of those things you don't know it was there until suddenly it's, it's gone away. Um, so, um, um, so, so part of what I'm trying to address uh, in the section you're talking about is that phenomenon, the, you know, the, the notion that we've lost the ability to, it's not just that we might have political disagreements um, about a specific topic, it's that um, the, uh, uh, we can't even agree with each other as to what is factual. Uh, and that plays out against um, the destruction, the nuclear, nuclear terrorism on in the United States. And that is a really scary topic to read about, but yet you make it very funny. <laughs> and that, well, that, that's a, that is really an amazing feat. So talk about doing that. And well, it's, of course, it's funny because it's not... It's not real, mm-hmm. but um, the uh, I wrote that section in uh, pretty early, like 2015, early 2016, and was really patting myself on the back for having been prescient, you know, and 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 gotten out ahead of events. And then um, when the election took place in late 2016, I sort of had this realization that I was years and years behind. <laughs> You know, uh, and it was, uh, and a lot of other uh, science fiction writers then and since then have made similar statements that um, uh, that it's just really hard to uh, to keep up with 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 what is actually going on now. So um, I ended up kind of standing back from that, and um, I went back uh, after I'd calmed down a little bit and, and rewrote that section, trying to change it instead of sort of me kind of predicting or projecting ideas into the future. Now it's meant to be more of a sort of a, a metaphorical description of something that uh, has happened or that is happening right now, and maybe a lens uh, that the reader could use to, to think about current events. Well, I think that uh, I remember one time Cory Doctorow told me that uh, science, really good science fiction, well, you can't really predict the future because you can't really see it. You can extrapolate and make some educated guesses. Arthur C. Clarke did a great job of that. That said, science fiction is written in the present, and what it predicts often is the present. And that's, I think, the feeling that you get in this book, that you have, like, predicted the present and played it for us in a way that makes it a lot more easier to understand, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. Um, you take us uh, out after this uh, a little bit farther in the future, and I, I like the way you pace the, the moment in time through the novel and how long you stay and how, how long you go in these episodes. How hard was that for you to create? Did that was that something you had to map out in advance, or was that something that you did extemporaneously? Well, it was a little bit of back and forth between those two. It took some adjusting and some tweaking to um, to make that kind of uh, come together um, in the 
in the right way because uh, what's going on is that we're jumping back and forth between the, the high fantasy novel uh, which takes place in a simulated reality and the uh, sort of techno thriller side of it and time is moving at a different pace between those two worlds sometimes in bit world time is moving faster sometimes it's moving slower and so that also complicates the question of how do you uh, handle the pacing and the, the intercutting between those two uh, worlds? So my plan all along was to taper um, away from the real world stuff and show less and less of that as time went on uh, and as many, many of the characters indeed move to the uh, to bit world and to spend more time uh, in in bit world. So by the time you get to the end of the book, it's almost totally the high fantasy uh, version. Um, and that did take a lot of, of tweaking uh, to sort of get it to come out right. I think that you did a, a wonderful job with that. And, and because we, bit world begins with just one person, yeah. which is Dodge. Mm -hmm. And he has to kind of form it out of whole cloth, and I think you do a wonderful, beautiful job of like thinking through that really logically. But as I was, and it's really interesting because as readers, we're thinking that the these kind of like high fantasy things that are happening are exactly logical ways that the mind would kind of start to build a world. And this, so talk about um, building a world. You know. Let there be light. You, it takes yeah. you, it's not that easy, is it? <laughs> well, the idea is that uh, he has, his consciousness has been booted back up, but it's not a perfect process. The process of scanning his brain wasn't perfect, and the, uh, the process of simulating it isn't perfect. So it kind of works, but um, his memories are all jangled and, and fragmented and, and not coherent. And... Um, and there's no, nothing for him to lock onto in the world for his senses to see. It's just sort of like a sea of, of static or chaos. So what he has to do is to begin pulling together some sensory impressions that he can kind of lock onto. And he starts with sort of the last clear, uh, vivid thing that he saw before he died, which was a red maple leaf uh, on the sidewalk outside the clinic. Um, and having created that, having kind of willed that into existence, he makes more of them, and then he makes uh, trees, and then a park, and so it builds a world that kind of nucleates around that initial image. You know, um, one of the things that I thought was was wonderful back in the real world was the, the way you play with Leviticus. <laughs> yeah. You have a lot of fun with that, and, and what you call Ameristan. So... Talk about that kind of fragmenting process, which we're, we are, I feel like, you know, as I read your book, I thought, wow, this is, it's already that way now. We just don't know it yet. Well, this is a little bit of a goof on the, the fact that um, a lot of uh, evangelicals uh, will, um, will quote from uh, books like Leviticus when it suits their purposes. So if they feel like being mean to, uh, to gay people or... Uh, or, um, or to women, um, they'll find some, uh, some obscure passage in, in Leviticus or one of those uh, books of the Old Testament that, um, 
that appears to, to support their, uh, their position. And it's a very selective style of, uh, of quoting the Bible. Um, so um, uh, in, in the section you're talking about, um, I've basically featured a group of people who, uh, who have just taken that, they've just turned that up to 11 and are, uh, have, have basically turned their backs on, on uh, conventional Christianity and even the idea of, uh, of, of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, uh, basically because it, uh, it doesn't play well with, with who they really are, which is sort of hardcore authoritarians. <laughs> you know, uh, going back to the magic world, one of the things that I, I thought of is I used to work for EMU Systems. Uh, they made samplers, and their their advertisements. You know, one of their earliest advertisements. This is in for technology we now consider primitive and almost unusable. Was that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? And your your novel really lays at the center of those two because even while we're reading the high fantasy and experiencing it as a high fantasy. As readers, we have this super dual vision. We, we, we realize that this is a simulated world and there, there are, are things happening back in the real world that have some reference to this, yeah. although it's not becomes increasingly less important. That's right. Um, so, um, uh, the, and it raises the question, you know, a, a, a thing that people love to speculate about is, you know, is, is it possible that the world we live in is itself just a simulation running on a computer in a different universe, you know, and then, so at that point you can go sort of turtles all the way down, right? So like, <laughs> exactly. what, what if that universe in turn is a simulation running on some other computer in some other universe? So that's, that's kind of the direction we're heading with this book. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to feel like, a, like an 8-bit version of myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, uh, uh, Space Invaders, me. Um, when we get into the uh, the the bit world, I, I think one of the, you do a really good job of creating recreating your characters in 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 bit world, and so talk the, the, the characters that we've earlier seen as living people in, yes. in meat space show up in in bit world. Yeah. yeah so so uh, when you did that, did you know how? When you were going to translate each character, or did that kind of like uh, flow off the tip of that fountain pen? Uh, well, it sort of emerged in a, I would say, kind of an organic way. I mean, I, I had some pre-existing plans for how it was going to go, um, but uh, you know, the uh, um, the interesting thing about myths and 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 legends is that you get all these interesting sort of non-human characters you get in Greek myths, you know, you get centaurs, you know, and in, in Lord of the Rings you get elves and dwarves. And uh, so there's uh, this whole kind of uh, fantasy menagerie of different uh, sentient but non-human creatures. And um, um, here I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to show them emerging in a kind of organic way out of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the underlying um, technology that makes BitWorld run. Now, uh, one of the underlying technologies that makes BitWorld run is actually quite old, and that would be Dante's Inferno. <laughs> so, uh, Paradise Lost. So, uh, I think that 
talk about and the prose edda there's a, there's yeah. a number of uh, references uh, references yeah, like in that. there how many different uh religious mythologies did you check out you know um uh, again that's a place where i could have gone pretty deep uh and and sort of maybe gone too far so i tried to keep it a little bit light i um <laughs> well, <laughs> well yeah compared to where it could have gone so oh, we, yeah so we've clearly got uh, references to the Bible. We've clearly got references to Greek myths. We've got some Lord of the Rings. You know, we've got some uh, some uh, Icelandic saga stuff. Um, and the the point that I'm trying to get at, without so being too on the nose about it, is that people kind of have a desire and a need for uh, for these myths and legends and religions, um, and uh, and they're going to get kind of reconstituted um, as as people wake up in the next life and and find that you know that's that's missing from the world. But it that's because it uh, there haven't been humans in that world yet. That's the human job. Is it? Uh, God didn't create man. It's the other way yeah. around. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's what's going on there. You know. Uh, one of the things that uh, the you refer to the Tower of Babel with um, in terms of a couple of times we, we see it there. Um, it, one is in terms of the connectome back here that well, when when they've created uh, an image of the brain, there are a variety of interpretations of that image, mm-hmm. and and none of them really tell us anything at first. Right. And you talk about that as the Tower of Babel, and then later on we have the characters in there really seem to build one <laughs> as well. So what was your experience in there that led to your interest in the Tower of Babel? Well, it's uh, it comes up in Snow Crash quite a bit. It's an mm. important thing in, in Snow Crash. And, um, and so it's sort of fun to, to revisit that, um, you know, in another context here. And it has to do with people's ability to communicate with with one another and how it does and doesn't work. Um, So in the original biblical story, what happens is that uh, uh, everyone in the world is speaking the same language and they build a tower to rival heaven and God smashes it down and changes the way that they speak so that they can't all understand each other anymore. Um, and, and so it's an explanation for why there's different languages, basically. Um, so that's sort of recapitulated in, um, in this book. Um, and it's, it's mentioned also in, uh, in Snow Crash. Um, I, I had an a interesting interaction last week with Dana Boyd. She is a, uh, a researcher uh, at Microsoft Research um, who's done a lot of thinking about uh, the internet, uh, virtual reality, social media, and uh, she was making the point that um, that uh, a, a lot of people who started the internet uh, were kind of hoping to uh, to build um, the metaverse, um, a place where everyone could talk to each other uh, all over the world, um, and they set out to do that, but what they ended up doing inadvertently was creating the Tower of Babel. It, it created a, a world or a situation in which people d- 
don't speak the same language and are kind of mutually incomprehensible. Well, as you recreate the internet, you call it the miasma in the book, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a place where nobody, almost by definition, can actually communicate with anybody else because nobody else could possibly even know what anything even means anymore or what's true. Yeah, there's a um, uh, there's sort of an early section of the book where that's presented, and then later on we see sort of how it looks 20 years down the road, and it's a, a picture where it's a little bit of a haves and haves not kind of situation mm -hmm. where if you're a have, you've got money, you can pay for a kind of curated, edited feed uh, where where actual human beings are of sifting through all of the, the garbage and providing you with a coherent stream of information. Um, and then if you uh, if you're a have not, you can't afford that, then what you're getting is algorithmically generated material that is um, so it has kind of driven people crazy because uh, it just is, is not coherent at all. In that sense, uh, this your vision of the internet reminds me of a, of an old uh, Stanislaw Lem piece mm. called uh, Pericalypsis, uh, and where he, it's a book review of a book called Pericalypsis. Mm. But the the theory in the center of it is that the apocalypse has come; um, it's already come to pass. Only nobody noticed it in all the haste, and that apocalypse was a creation. And, and this book was written in. Story I think was written in the 70s, so it's pretty prescient in that sense. Mm -hmm. That um, there are so many books being generated and written that the seven books that could save the world could no more be found than could any seven grains of sand in the Sahara. Huh. They're just lost beneath the strata of trash. Wow. And so he proposes a fix of paying people not to write. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, that's uh, people, it's funny, people have been complaining for hundreds of years about the acceleration of information and how you can look at intellectuals, you know, three, 350 years ago um, <laughs> saying, well, you know, when I was younger, you know, you could read all the books and you could know everything, but so many books are being published now that uh, that's just not possible anymore. Um, so it's kind of an ongoing perception, you know, that the, the rise of, of information is sort of spiraling out of control. It's a, a shrink to fit for the for the times we live in, yeah. whatever those times may be. Yeah. Um, when you started, when you're in the the fantasy world, mm -hmm. um, the bit world, I think one of the things that I, I really like it, about it is how you. One of the things that is the great strength of science fiction is and, and fantasy. And literature, in a sense, are all demonstrated in that part, which is that they allow you to externalize anything and everything. You can talk about things, and, and, and by virtue of having somebody, you know, have extra arms, and you can talk about how hard it is to keep track of all the stuff you have to keep track of. And, and so I think that that kind of externalization is almost, in a sense, you know, what, what the book is about it is you, hmm. our ability to externalize our thoughts in bit world it's complete we are all our, our own gods well everything is sort of mutable at least at the beginning mm -hmm. you, you know dodge has the ability to 
to create new mountains and rivers and so on just by kind of thinking it. And he can change his own shape. Um, and, uh, and that continues for a while. So um, it's kind of hundreds of years later that um, people have settled into more fixed forms and, and the landscape has stopped changing. Um, and so, and people have come to, to think of those things as, as, as immutable. Uh, objects. Um, so it sort of gives us a way to talk a little bit about magic and, you know, what magic is. Well, yeah, that it's indistinguishable from yeah. <laughs> an advanced technology in yeah, this case. Yeah. And the advanced technology is the world they live in that makes that possible. I, you have so many interesting characters in here. I just have to bring up one of my favorite, Pompidus Bombasticus. <laughs> Tell us about creating this wonderful, wonderful character. So yeah, a minor character, but a fun character. Uh, he's a musician. Um, this comes from a, a real thing that happened, uh, actually, which is that, um, you know, there's a piece of music called Carmina Burana, which you have heard in the soundtracks of a hundred different low-budget horror movies. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, it... Um, uh, it has become kind of a cliche uh, in in horror movies to to play that music, and so um, the the idea is that uh, uh, someone has the bright notion that uh, well, if if there's such a demand for that one piece of music, then it seems like I could make some money by creating new music um, that could serve the same purpose. Basically, creating soundtrack. Uh, music for non-existent movies uh, that uh, that then movie makers could use if they wanted um, to go with certain kinds of scenes, uh, and so there's there's actually a few different um, groups making music of that uh, of that description, and it's you know, a lot of it's pretty good stuff actually. Well, who do you listen to? That sounds like something I would play on my radio show actually. Um, the uh, one is called uh, I think Two Steps from Hell. Uh, it's an odd name for a group, and um, and so Dodge has gotten in the habit of listening to this uh, uh, to this music. It's just one guy in Germany with a, a room full of synthesizers, kind of making it all up. And um, he, uh, it's the last music that he hears before he dies because he's got his earphones on. Um, and so later on, when he's kind of building the world, you know he. He feels like something's missing, and he wants to have uh, he wants to have music, um, and so music comes into the world, and um, and Pompidus Bombasticus then shows up as a character after after the musician passes away, um, and becomes kind of like the Pan in Greek mythology, sort of the 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 kind of real time composer of of incidental music um, for the world. You know, that's one of the things I think about this book. It's so full of details and, and characters that at once in, are like tightly woven into the narrative, but you, you kind of throw them off really casually so we don't feel like, okay, yes, here's this. And, you know, it, we all are always kind of catching up with you. And that's one of the pleasures of reading your book is catching up with you. And it's and this book, where as we catch up, we realize, oh, uh, you were talking about uh, 
snow crash. I was waiting for, for Hero to show up somewhere. Oh. <laughs> but instead, of, I was perfectly happy to find Enoch Root. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and the character from Cryptonomicon in there. Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, Enoch shows up and plays a fairly significant role in the book. And then there, you might think of them as cameo appearances, uh, not by the Cryptonomicon characters themselves, but their, their descendants um, to kind of wrap up those uh, storylines a little bit, and tie things together. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it felt right to, uh, to pull those threads in and and pull these things together into the larger cycle. It seems to me that you had a lot of fun writing this book. Was that the case? Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was fun. It was um, uh, relatively light on research. So um, some of my books, you know, if it's a historical novel, it might require a lot of historical research. If it's a more of a hard sci-fi novel. It might require a lot of, of that kind of research. Uh, if it's a book like Reem D, which takes place in other parts of the world, I might have to go to those places and, uh, and look around and see them. Uh, but in this case, it's all pretty much made up uh, on the fly. And so it was a fairly uh, easy in the sense that I just would sit down every day and, and kind of carry the narrative forward. Now, um one of the things that you do in this book that I thought was really fun was you actually take take on uh, Dante. <laughs> so talk about writing uh, in that pages in verse. <laughs> they were really fun, I thought. Oh, well, yeah, there's a page that is, um, or, or a section that is uh, is sort of an uh, epic poem, I guess. It's, it's not very Dante-like, but it's... Um, it's, uh, it's more written in the style of, a, let's say, a northern European folk song like a bard might sing. Uh, and uh, it tells the story of one of the characters who, who, by this point, has passed into legend and become a sort of goddess uh, in this world. So, um, so that's in there uh, as a, a kind of, you know, several pages of stanzas of... Uh, of, of sort of song-like poetry, uh, not meant to be sort of highfalutin um, verse by any stretch of the imagination, but more in the style of, like I said, a, a bar song. I'm, I'm curious, uh, is there any chance that something like this would be made into a movie? It seemed, I mean, I read this book and I just saw it unfold like a film in my mind. It felt like, even though it's a longish book, it felt like watching a, a rock and two and a half hour movie. You never know. Um, my stuff has been uh, bouncing around in Hollywood since, <laughs> believe it or not, since 1984. That's not about right. Yeah, so The Big U uh, came out in 83, I think, 84, and it was optioned actually by none other than Ridley Scott for a while. <clears throat> and so, um, and almost everything I've written since then has gotten at least some attention from, from Hollywood people, but uh, nothing has actually made it to the screen yet. And it's a combination of factors. It's, uh, you know, the odds are always long against any one project making it all the way to the finish line. Uh, and my stuff is uh, sometimes, you know, it's big, it's complicated. Um, 
in in fact, um, the the rise comparatively recently of long form television, high quality television, has actually maybe given my works a new lease on life as possible. That's exactly what I was thinking. This, yeah. you, you adapt this, you're going to have people hooked for years and years and years. Yeah, not much of what I've written could comfortably be be compressed into a two-hour movie, but um, but definitely TV. So um, <clears throat> there's uh, um, uh, it's just it just came the book just came out three days ago. Um, so there's nothing happening yet in that in that area, but, you know, uh, we'll see. Now, I want to ask you about a book that you wrote a while ago that has been on my mind, especially since 2016, which is a book called The Interface. Sure. Which uh, Co-wrote with my uncle. Yeah. yeah. So how do you feel about that book now, <laughs> since it seems to have, uh, it, it feels like it was uh, written for 2016? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's funny uh, that way, isn't it? Um, it's the, the, the story seemed kind of high-tech at the time that, uh, that we wrote it. So a lot of the tech content is sort of dated now, but the story is that there's a, a governor of Illinois who's very considered an up-and-coming, promising politician, suffers a stroke, um, He's, they, they implanted a chip in his head to, to, to fix him back up and get him moving and talking normally. Um, and then someone comes up with the bright idea of interfacing that to us, a polling, an online real-time polling system. Uh, so he can be giving a speech um, and he can immediately sense how he's doing in the polls and, and flip-flop to a different political stance like in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> And so he becomes an unstoppable force in politics and ends up uh, getting elected president. And that is the future brought to you by Neil yeah. Stevenson. I know, right? I've been talking to Neil Stevenson. His new novel is Fall or Dodge in Hell. Thank you for joining me, Neil. Thanks for, uh, for letting me come into your studio and uh, have a nice conversation. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, trashotron.com slash agony.